Acts chapter 2. We've been here for, uh, for a couple of weeks now. I think this is the fourth message in this series that we're calling Back to the Basics. And today I want to talk to you about uh, the basics of joy. And uh, let's read uh, these last several verses in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So we, we, we took this scripture and we looked at it because it gives us a picture of what the church looked like in its inception. And I believe it gives us a picture of what the church should look like throughout its life. So I don't think this is something that uh, evolves and changes Methods may change and, you know, we have electricity now. They didn't have electricity then. We have air conditioning now. They didn't have air. There are things that change, but there are basic elements. There's basic things that are basic to our faith, basic to our worship that remain the same. And, you know, some of these things we just read, baptism is basic to our our faith. Uh, The doctrine, our doctrine and our fellowship is basic. The breaking of bread coming to the table of the Lord is is very basic to our faith and basic to our worship. It's why we do it each week uh, as part of our worship. Um, The fear of the Lord and the moving of the Holy Spirit. You know, uh, God is not someone we should fear as though we would fear a monster. But God is someone that we should have reverence and awe toward. And when we understand who God is and how great and magnificent God is, there is a reverence that we should possess, that we should approach God with. But at the very same time, God gives us the privilege, the Bible says, to come boldly and with confidence before the throne of grace. It's kind of like a child with his father. There should be a respect for a father that a child has because he is that child's father. But there should never be a time when a child fears coming to his father. I hope you can understand the tension between those two realities. It says that they continue daily uh, in one accord, breaking bread from house to house, meeting in the temple, says that they shared their possessions. They had all things in common. So we see some things that are very basic to our worship and basic to our Christian life, or we could call them the basics of the Christian life. And that's kind of what I want to talk to you about today is about finding joy in the basics of the Christian life. If we're not careful, 
we can simply reduce all of these things. We can make a list from these scriptures here in Acts. And we can reduce these things down to a series of things that we do in order to have a correct method in the correct form. If you will, we could make a checklist that we could check off each week. Well, we sang our songs. We said our prayers. We came to the table. We gave our offering. It's not, that's not the point that we have a list to, to check off. That's not finding joy in what it means to live the life of faith and to be in Christ. And so we see that our life, the life that God's called us to, is much greater than just going down a list and checking things off and feeling like that we're okay as long as we've done that. That's not correct at all when it comes to the Christian life and worship and our joy in Christ. God's greatest desire for you is that you would find your greatest joy in Christ. And there are a lot of Christians who don't have much joy. There are a lot of people who have this misconception that God is someone that I have to serve if I want to avoid hell. Or God is someone I have to pay homage to or I have to worship or he's going to be upset with me and he's going to do bad things to me. Listen, it's true. If you don't come to worship God in your life, bad things are going to happen to you. Ultimately, you're going to go to hell. Hell is real. It's a real place. And real people will go to hell because they really refused to worship the true and living God. But God promises that those who will worship him should and will find their greatest joy. So when we talk about going back to the basics, when we talk about the basics of the Christian life or the basics of our worship, it's more than just making sure we have all of the proper elements in place when we come together on Sunday morning. What we're really talking about is your life and your lifestyle. Are you finding joy in your life in Christ? So in an effort to provoke you to Christ-likeness, because that's really what I want to do, I want to provoke you to Christ-likeness. I want to ask you some tricky, provocative questions. I want to use a provocatively unpopular example, and I want to challenge you to humble surrender. Can I do that? Well, I'm going to do that whether you give me permission to or not, okay? So here's my tricky, provocative questions for you. I want you to I want you to listen because these are, these are serious questions. How are you holding back from God? I want you just to think for a moment. How are you holding back from God? Here's another question. When it comes to your daily life, where does Christ fit in? When it comes to your daily life, where does Christ fit in? Here's the last question for now. How much is Christ a part of your life? How much is Christ a part of your life? Now, if we surveyed most professing Christians, they would say that Christ is an important part of their life. They could list all the ways that that is true. 
they could list reasons such as their belief system, their morals, their church attendance, their family life. There's all kinds of other things that they might give as reasons that would indicate Christ is a part of their life, maybe even a big part of their life. Now, remember, I said I had some tricky questions. Those are sort of trick questions. The real question we should ask, I want you to pay attention. The real question that we should ask is this. Have you come to know Christ as your life? See, the question that we think about a lot of times is, is how much is Christ a part of our life? Is Christ a part of my life? It's very common for uh, you to have someone ask a believer, ask someone, is Christ a part of your life? It's not that it's an illegitimate question, but it's really not the correct question that we should be asking. The real question is, have you come to know Christ as your life? Now, you might think that I'm splitting hairs with these questions, but I promise that I'm not. Because there is a vast and an important difference between having Christ as part of your life and you knowing Christ as your life. When we make Christ a part of our life, we add various things to our life that we identify with Christ, whether they're truly of Christ or not. Christ becomes an addition to our life, and for some, that addition becomes very great. We can fill our life with things that we identify with Christ to the degree that we have this huge addition to our life that makes Christ a large, even an overwhelming part of our life. The tragic thing about that is that no matter how big of an addition Christ becomes to our life, he is still only an addition. Hebrews 3, 6, the writer of Hebrews penned these words, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Christ as a son over his own house. Who is that house? He says, we are that house. You are the house of God. You are the house that Christ is head over. So I want you to notice that Christ is not an addition to the house that we are over, but we have become his own house that he is over. Christ is not an addition that belongs to you, but you belong to him. Remember, we talked about this last week, that you are not here so that Christ can serve you. You are here to serve Christ. Christ does not exist for you. You exist for Christ. You were created for Christ. So Christ is not an addition that belongs to you, but you belong to him. You are his house. The Bible uses this language. You are the house of God. You're his temple. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are his dwelling place. He fills you and he is your life. Paul writes in his letter to the Colossians, when, when Christ appears, when you appear with him in glory, Christ who is your life 
uh, shall appear, you shall appear with him. Christ who is your life. Paul uses that phrase, Christ who is your life. So Christ didn't come to be in addition to your life. Christ came to be your life. This is very important. And so don't be satisfied to have Jesus as only a part of your life, but be determined to know that Christ is your life. I want to say that again. Don't be satisfied to only have Jesus as part of your life, but be determined to know that Christ is your life. Be determined to know that Christ has taken away your life in the cross and has imparted to you his life. This is what a life of faith is. It is a life consumed and filled with the life of Christ. This is what it means to know Christ as your life. It is to know you have been crucified with Christ, that it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. This is, this is a famous uh, words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20, when Paul cries, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Paul did not make Jesus a part of his life. Paul came to understand that he was crucified with Christ, that his life was no longer And he had now received the resurrection life of the Son of God. And the life he now lived in the flesh, he lived by faith in the Son of God. It is no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. So to know Christ as your life takes away the fear that you are somehow not good enough. And that is the point. We were never meant to be good enough. Remember in our study of Genesis, when God created Adam, Adam, the first man, Adam, was never meant to be the man who would walk in perfection. God knew Adam would never walk in perfection. God brought the first Adam so that he could bring the second Adam. God brought the first man so that he could bring forth the second man. And it was the second man, the second Adam, who Paul describes that Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says Jesus is the second man. It was that second man that was always meant to walk in holiness and perfection, utter perfection before God. When we come to faith in Christ, when we are born again, and we come to lose our life in the cross and to gain his life in his resurrection, then we have come to realize that we We're never good enough. We were never able to be good enough, no matter how hard we work, no matter how hard we try. And that is the point. We were never meant to be good enough. We were meant to find as our life the only one who is good. And when Christ becomes our life, we stop trying to be good enough and we rest in his goodness. That resting in his goodness is like a branch that is abiding in the vine. There is a work that takes place that will produce the life of the vine through the branch. That's what we call fruit. Resting in his goodness does not mean there is no work taking place, but it means that we are not the source of that work, but the vessel his work is being performed through. 
And we have a joyful participation in this work of God. So this is what Jesus in John 15, when Jesus gives his discourse, this is between the Last Supper and the crucifixion. This is before he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is going to a garden to be arrested, to be crucified. And Jesus is telling his disciples, I am the true vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear fruit. And my father is glorified by the fruit that you will bear. So the branch is abiding. It's not working to stay connected. It's it's living in, it's abiding in, it's resting in the vine. But there is a very real work that's taking place through that branch to produce that fruit. So in his grace, we surrender to his work as his life fills us and we partake of the life and the fruit that is produced through us. And as a branch living in the true vine, we experience the life that produces in us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are listed for you in Galatians 5.22. It's what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. This is the characteristic of who God is, of who Christ is. This is the characteristic of the manifestation of the life of Christ. If Christ is in you, if his life is present in you, this is what will come out of your life. I didn't say it would be easy. I didn't say it would be automatic. But remember, in that parable of the vine and the branches, Jesus said, you are, he said, I am the true vine, you are the branches. But he says, my father is the vine dresser. So God the father is the vine dresser that knows how to bring fruit from the branch. And you are the branch. So the father in heaven knows how to bring his fruit from your life. For you, it may seem hard, it may seem difficult, it may seem laborious, it may seem long and drawn out, and you may become impatient with yourself. But God is ever working in you and through you, in all things and through all things, through beautiful things and through ugly things, through easy things and through very difficult things. God is ever working in your life. And what he wants to do is to produce his fruit through your life. Now, God does not deny us the fruit he produces in us, but we are meant to fully and abundantly partake of this fruit. So when Christ becomes our life, we become full partakers of his life and his nature. If Christ is only a part of our life, we have only the illusion of life. How can you know he is your life How can you know that Christ is your life? Ask him. Jesus said, you fathers being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more your heavenly father, if you ask for him, the Holy Spirit, will he not give it to you? When you have received the spirit of God, you have received his life. You can't be saved and not not have the Spirit of God. 
That is your salvation. Your salvation is that God has put his spirit. He's poured his spirit into your heart. You have become the house of God. You have become the vessel that contains the presence of God. Not because you deserve it, not because I deserve it. We are failed, frail jars of clay. But somehow, beyond my imagination, God in his grace and his mercy, according to his sovereign will, created these vessels of clay called human beings. And he created these vessels of clay so that he could pour his glory into them and we could become the very vessels, the very containers of his life and nature so that he would be manifest throughout this world and all of his creation and we would glory in his grace forever and ever and ever. Ask him to take your old life and to give to you his new life. And do not relent until you have come to know that Christ is your life. Not just a part of your life. Not just something you've added in addition to your already busy life and busy schedule. God's not someone you make an appointment with. No, God must become your life. And you must come to know that he is that. That he is your very life. So why is this distinction so important? This distinction of having Christ a part of your life versus you knowing that Christ is your life. If we do not come to know Christ is our life, what we call the basics of the Christian life will become a burden instead of a joy. They will become a labor you will tire of instead of a life you love living. Church becomes the place you drag yourself to because you're afraid maybe not to. God is the one you pray to in those moments of crisis that is absent from your thoughts and your minds most other times. But, but when the crisis hits, God is your spiritual 911. But when the crisis is over, where does God, where does God fit in your life? See, if Jesus is just a part of your life, if he's just someone that you've made a part of your life, then you're going to pick him up and bring him to you and use him and, and fellowship with him and do that when it's necessary or when it's convenient or when you feel like it. But when you come to understand that Christ is your life, it's very different. I mean, what if your lungs were just things that you used when you needed them? How often would you use them? How often do you need your lungs? You never don't need them. Why would we think that Christ is less important than our lungs? He created our lungs. He gave us our lungs. Matter of fact, God created our bodies to function in such a way that even our bodies scream about how desperately we are in need of God. God is just as necessary. He is more necessary than the air we breathe. Because when you stop breathing oxygen, guess who's still going to be there? God will still be there. 
when your body stops breathing oxygen, you don't cease to exist. You will exist eternally somewhere. And whether Jesus is simply a part of your life or whether you have come to know that he is your life will determine where you spend eternity. This is why this distinction is so very important because it's very easy for human beings because this is part of our sinful nature. We are very proficient at filling our lives with all kinds of things and we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we're okay because I've got my scripture on the refrigerator. I've got crosses hanging all over my house. But none of that saves us. Listen, you can come to this church and this worship service week in and week out and that doesn't guarantee you're going to be saved because church attendance doesn't save you. But if you are saved, if Christ is your life, there will be a love and a desire for those things that Christ loves and desires. And do you know one thing that we know for certain Christ loves and desires? Christ loves and desires his church. You know how we know that? Because he died for it. Christ loves and desires his bride. We know that because he came to this earth And he died on a cross in order to take for himself a bride. And if you are born again today, if Christ is your life, you are that bride. You are his church. And if you are his bride and if you are his church, if you are the thing that Christ died for, does it not stand a reason that those things that are near and dear to Christ should be near and dear to us? Not because we're guilted into them becoming near and dear. Wives, how many of you feel really good about your husband loving you because he has to? Because he's been threatened that if he doesn't love you, bad things are going to happen to him. And the only reason he stays with you and calls you his wife is because he's under threat. Or, husband, what if we turn that around? And the only reason your wife stays with you and the only reason she calls herself your wife is because she has to. Because she's under the illusion that there's some threat that's been made to her She doesn't really love you, though. She doesn't really find joy in spending her life with you. She doesn't doesn't care a thing about washing your dishes and doing your laundry and taking care of the house. She finds absolutely no joy in it. She just does it because she has to. It wouldn't be a very happy marriage, would it? It's It's not what marriage is supposed to be. It's not what earthly marriage is supposed to be. It's not what the relationship between Christ and his bride is supposed to be. So this is why I began this message today with these questions. Where is your heart? Where is Christ in all of this? Who is Christ to you? Is he just a part of your life? Or have you truly come to know that he is your life and you are as desperate for Christ as you are for the air 
that you breathe. You are whether you realize it or not. So when Christ is simply a part or an addition to your life, the basics of the Christian life become a burden to maintain. And here's a principle. What you love is not burdensome. We can all remember back. Hopefully, it's still the case. But to be honest with you, my wife's not in here, is she? No, okay. You know, you can remember when, when uh, guys, you know what I'm talking about. You know, when you, you first met your wife and you were courting her, dating her, whatever you want to call it, and you couldn't wait to go buy her flowers or candy or do something wonderful for her, and you were excited about that. Somehow, though, after years of marriage, I don't know, is that, is that excitement still there? It should be. But, but let's be honest, sometimes it's not, right? Sometimes it's not as easy to find as it was in the beginning. This, this is a principle. So Jesus talks about this in the book of Revelation when he writes the seven letters to the churches. And he says to, to the church at Ephesus, he said, your problem is you've, you've left your first love. It's not that they didn't love God. It's not that they didn't love God. They were doing all kinds of things that, that appeared or indicated they loved him, but they, they were not doing it really out of love. It's very easy for us to begin to do things out of a sense of obligation. Guys, I can promise you, your wife would much rather you do something for her because you want to do it, not because you feel obligated to do it. Listen, when she asks me to take the trash out and I finally do it and I let her know that I'm doing it, I just want you to know I'm taking this trash out now. And she knows that I'm doing it because, you know, I just need to do it because it's time versus I'm just doing it because it's my joy to serve her. I confess my sin. It should be our joy to serve him. It should be our joy to find our life in him. It should be our joy to find joy in the things he finds his joy in. And you are someone he finds his joy in. He endured the cross for you. Do you find your joy in him? It's a very important question. 1 John 5, 3, John writes this, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. What you love is not burdensome. When Christ becomes your life, those things basic to him become a natural outgrowth of Christ in you. When Christ is your life, you find yourself abiding in him instead of trying to maintain him as a part of your busy life. One way, it's a flow. In another way, it's something you have to force. Our salvation is not a work we can force. Salvation is a gift that flows from God. We receive that gift by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Christ is not a part of, he is our life. So we're talking about finding joy in the basics of the Christian life. And we looked through this, these scriptures in Acts and we saw these things that were basic, our baptism, our doctrine and fellowship, our breaking bread together, our prayers, our fear of God and the moving of his spirit, our unity, our giving and sharing, our continuing daily with gladness, singleness of heart, praise and favor 
and God's increase. Those were all parts of what we see in the early church. They should all be part of what we see today in the church. And you see these basics are not just about the church service. They are really about the totality of our life. So remember, I was, told you I was going to ask you some tricky questions and I was going to use a, uh, an unpopular provocative example. Here's my unpopular example. Let's take one of these basic elements of the Christian life as an example. Let's take the element of giving. So talking about giving in church is often a sore subject. Mention giving and some people will refuse to darken the door of your church again. I've actually had that happen. Uh, there are entire systems and seminars that you can buy at great expense designed around encouraging or manipulating, depending on how you view this. Uh, there's a lot of manipulation that goes on in the church. But there's entire systems and seminars built around uh, encouraging your members in their giving. For most pastors myself included. This is a subject that I don't like to talk about because it seems very self-serving and no one wants to be seen as self-serving. So for a pastor whose livelihood is fully supported by the church to talk about giving can be seen as a self-serving endeavor. But that is not why pastors should or should not talk about giving. We should never be afraid to talk about the things that God commands us to do, no matter how unpopular they may be, no matter how self-serving they may sound. It is the Lord's will that those who preach the gospel should live by the gospel, as Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians verse 14, 1 Corinthians 9, 14, Paul writes, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. And the reason we should not be shy to talk about the Lord's command for us to give is just that, because it is his command that we give. Matthew 5, 42, uh, Jesus uh, talks about giving. Um, in, in Matthew 10, 8, in Matthew 9, 21, in Matthew 23, 23. Those are all scriptures. When he chastises the Pharisees, he says, you tithe down to the, the, the leaves of mint in your garden, but you leave justice and mercy undone. He said, you should, you should do those other things, but you shouldn't leave the weightier matters, the greater things uh, undone as well. In other words, giving is something God has always commanded his children. So in the Old Testament, the law of Moses prescribed the giving of the people of God. In the New Testament, it is the law of the spirit of life in Christ that prescribes our giving. Are you listening to me, church? In the Old Testament, it was Moses' law that prescribed the giving. In the New Testament, we're not under the law of Moses. We're under the law of the spirit of life in Christ. That is what rules everything in our life now. So after, after 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, there was no place for the people of God to bring their sacrifice and their offerings prescribed under the law of Moses. That whole system for offering those gifts to God had been abolished by God himself. 
don't, don't misunderstand this. God destroyed that temple and he did it on purpose. And he did it because what that temple represented, what that system of sacrifice and offering represented was no longer relevant because Christ had come and Christ now was the fulfillment of those things. This is what Paul writes to us in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. It's what the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 9, 8 through 11 and verse 24. I don't have time to take you there. You can make reference of those and go and read those yourself. But Christ is now the fulfillment of those things. And this is why God abolished that whole system of offering gifts in the temple. Christ has come and Christ is the fulfillment of that system and all that system represented. That old system of giving was stopped, but giving did not stop. The tithe did not stop. Offerings did not stop. Alms did not stop. In fact, in the New Testament, we see that the prescription for giving was not lowered, but it was integrated into a lifestyle of freedom. If anything, the the constraints were blown off of it. The law of Moses no longer prescribed the believer's giving. The law of the spirit of life in Christ now rules our giving. So what is the standard? Here's the standard. Freely you have received, freely give. Our giving is now limited only by the constraints of the spirit and the word of God. So the tithe still means 10% and the tithe still belongs to God. But we are not constrained by the tithe. Our only constraint is the Spirit of God. And this is difficult for people to grasp if they have not come to know Christ as their life. So when, when I talk about giving, when we talk about giving, oftentimes you hear things like this. God doesn't need my money. Or the preacher only wants my money. Or I gave at the office. Or whatever excuse there might be, these are simply excuses that miss the point entirely. And the point is our worship. The point is our life before God. Giving is just one portion of that. And giving our money is just one portion of our giving. So giving like Everything else we do is basic to our worship. The main point of our giving to God is not the pastor, it's not the church or any other, but God has commanded that we give because God has made provision for his pastors, for his church. And the provision God has made for pastors and churches is your faithful giving. The provision God has made for the work of God to go forth is your giving. How do we give to our missionaries every month? You give. How do we keep the lights on? You give. How do we keep the heat on? It's working really good this morning. You give. I mean, it, it, it happens in ways that it's so easy for us to take for granted. And it's very easy for us to separate that from our worship, but don't do that. Because it's absolutely part of your worship. So the provision that God has made is your faithful giving. The question that is central to this issue is not how much. The question that's central to this issue of giving and every other issue that's basic to the Christian life 
is one of origin. The question is this, what is the source? What is the origin of your giving or your worship or your love for God? It comes from a heart of worship. From the new heart God gives to his children. Do you realize that? When you're born again, we talked about this, remember? What God wants you to do is lose your life so that you can gain the life of his son. And in losing your life, guess what happens to you? God gives you a new heart. And out of that new heart, that is where you worship him. That is how you love him because he has put a heart of love in you. And from the heart of love God has put in you, you now worship him. You now love him. You now love those around you. You now do those things that he loves. Now, I don't want to belabor the point, And this subject is much greater than your giving. Our giving and all that is basic to our faith is about a life of worship. It is about him. It is about his glory. Now, here's my plea for your humble surrender. The trick question was asking if Christ was a part of your life. That was a trick question. How much is Christ a part of your life? Wrong question. The real question, remember, is this. Is Christ your life? Have you lost your old life in the cross and received his new life in his resurrection? When Christ becomes your life, then all you are and all you have becomes his. And what you are withholding from him what you are withholding from God, you are withholding unjustly. You are withholding wrongly. So this goes back to the question I asked you, what are you withholding from God? How are you holding back from God? Now I talked about giving on purpose. Because if you are afraid to let go of your material things, it is a sign that you are afraid to let go of much more important things. Because the only reason God cares about your material things is because he cares about you. And your ability to willingly and faithfully and generously let go of your material things indicates where your heart is. Whether you are willing to admit it or not, whether I am willing to admit it or not, the degree that I am holding back from God is directly proportional to those areas of life that I'm withholding, the more important areas. If I will not let God have my material things, chances are, it's a good indication I'm not going to really let God have my life. I'm not going to willingly lay my life down for God if I cannot willingly lay down my material things. What's more valuable to you, your money or your life? Your life is much more valuable. If you are afraid to let go of your material things, you are afraid to let go of much more important things. You are afraid to let go of your life. And God wants your life 
And he really wants nothing less. Because if God has your life, then he's got everything. So let's flip that around. If you know that Christ is your life and you are not your own, what's the problem? Why are we afraid to let God have whatever he wants? Why are we afraid to lay down whatever it is God is asking us to lay down? If we truly know and we truly believe Christ is my life, Christ is eternal, Christ is overcome, he is victorious. If Christ is your life, what are you fearful of? God wants your life. He wants nothing less. So here's my challenge to you. Give it to him. Humble yourself and surrender to his will and come to discover Christ as your life. Open your heart and open your hands to him and hold nothing back. This is the work of the Holy Spirit to reveal Christ as your life in all of his fullness, in all of his glory, for all of your joy. Let's not forget joy. This is where we started. We're talking about the basics of joy. What is basic to your joy is to know Christ is your life. What could God give you greater than the gift of his son? What possibly could God give you that is greater than Jesus Christ? What could possibly create more joy than to know that God has given to us the most precious thing he could possibly give us? If it does not produce that in us, then there is a disconnect somewhere. And if there is a disconnect, what I'm encouraging you to do is to pray is to seek God, is to ask God to do a work in your heart by his spirit, that he would reveal himself to you in a way that you would come to know the fullness of his life, the fullness of his glory, and the fullness of your joy. So God has not called us to just fulfill some weekly checklist, but to surrender our life daily. God wants you to know that Christ is your life and that he is your greatest joy. Knowing Christ as the life of the believer is basic to our faith. It is essential for our joy and for his glory. If you are dying of thirst, what will you do? You will desperately seek for a drink. If your life is void of his joy, if the Christian life has become drudgery for you, laborous for you, tiring for you, something that you have to force yourself to engage in, I would encourage you to recognize how desperate you are for his joy and that you would desperately seek after him as a man who seeks after a drink of water to save his life. If you're dying for joy, seek desperately the God of joy. Seek him as your life depends upon it. Because it does. Let's all stand. Father, we thank you that you have given to us the greatest gift that could ever be given. You did not withhold anything from us. 
you gave fully and freely when you gave your son. You opened heaven and you poured out such blessing that we are not able to contain it. I pray today, God, Lord, as your children, God, that we would find in you our greatest joy. That we would not see our worship and our life in Christ as something we're compelled to do, something we're burdened to do, something we're doing under threat. I pray, God, that we would find in our hearts, God, a love that would compel us, that would no longer be a labor, but it would be our joy, it would be the life we love to live, the life to honor you, the life to serve you, the life to love one another as you have loved us, to be in fellowship with you and with your body. Lord, for those who might be here who perhaps are not sure whether you are their life, Lord, maybe they've spent much of their life trying to make you a part of their life. Maybe something was said today that helped them understand that God, unless you are our life and not just a part, till you become our life, Lord, we have no salvation. We have no life. We have only the illusion that we've created in our own mind. And I pray, God, that you would create in those hearts that are Lord, are separated from you, that you would create in them a hunger and a thirst for you, that you would cause them to be born again, that you would create that desire, that desperation for life itself, that they would seek the God of joy and find your joy for the sake of their life. We ask that you would do this, Lord, and that you would do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.